0: It's, it kind of goes to that, like okay, it's I, crunchy I gazpacho. Silenced Chris.
1: <laughs> this has never happened before. Is cereal a soup, Chris? Yes or no? Maybe. Oh, boy. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am, by 24 hour cookie establishments. Do you guys, do you guys go to these places?
0: I don't, but I'd like to. (laughs) I
1: I don't understand. Chris is handing me cookies. Did they come from a 24 hour cookie establishment?
0: No.
1: No. How do these places stay in business? So my kids go to these. These are these places that are open. Like, well, I don't know if they're open 24 hours, but they're open really late selling only cookies.
2: Hmm. Well, if you put it next to
1: a marijuana dispensary, I bet it would be a great business model. But I
0: didn't want to implicate your children. That
1: that is (laughs) next um, to
2: ice cream and pizza restaurant.
1: That is that is a new development though, <laughs> the marijuana dispensaries. So the the, the the cookie places have been around for a long time. Anyway, I've never understood how they stay in business selling only cookies at three in the morning. But anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by Dr. Christopher Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Matt. And I am also joined by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health. Welcome,
0: Jess. Thank you. Hi, Matt and Chris.
1: And as a reminder, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's... BU's hub for lifelong learning you'll find lots of interesting stuff there and I think Nick is auctioning off his uh, doodles there is that right Nick are you auctioning art he says yes no he's not (laughs) and also head over to your uh, favorite podcast app where you can give us a five star rating or four star rating or nothing below that really, right? We don't we don't want it.
0: We, we won. It's it's capped.
1: We've capped it. The the, the scale goes from four, <laughs> four to five. To five so you can you can choose either one. But that helps other people find the show. So let's get into the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're gonna look at a study on the impact of early convalescent plasma in COVID treatment. So we have looked at convalescent plasma before so this is a Return to all things convalescent plasma. And then in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about a paper or a, a news story on, on uh, increasing gun violence research in the United States. And then finally, in our amazing and amusing, we will get into the things that make us
2: laugh out loud, or Chris will tell us about Gordon Lightfoot, maybe? Yeah. You got think Gordon Mellotron? Gordon updates? Yeah, I was going to go see him in concert this month, and <laughs> they canceled his tour. And reschedule it for the summer, which makes me think that Gordon, who's probably getting on in age, might have uh, suffered an event of some sort. Mm. I hope not. I hope not. I like his music. I hope
1: not. Well, with that happy news, let's get into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article, as I said, that looked at a treatment for COVID that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was entitled Early Convalescent Plasma For high-risk outpatients with COVID-19 by first author, Dr. Frederick Corley of the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Some headlines on this one. Convalescent plasma did not stop COVID-19 progression shows NIH trial results, says MSN. Yahoo Finance says, does convalescent plasma therapy help in COVID-19 recovery? NIH study says it does not. And usnews.com says survivors' plasma won't help fight COVID in patients with early symptoms. So that'll give you the flavor for what they found in this study. But Jess, can you walk us through this study?
0: Sure. And that's a big spoiler right at the beginning. It's interesting in reading this paper, convalescent plasma is a phrase that is now in the popular lexicon in a way. It obviously wasn't pre-pandemic, but there's something kind of nice about that. Agreed. You know, like monoclonal antibodies, like the, you know, these just roll off the tongue. Absolutely. Uh, right now. in a Herd way they immunity. Right. You know, that we have to give some, you know, some props to the pandemic for introducing everyone to some of our favorite biomedical and epi terms. In any event, so this was an interesting paper, as Matt was prefacing, the question here, the core research question was, does treatment with convalescent plasma improve outcomes among less severe COVID patients? So there has been some research to suggest that in high risk Acutely ill COVID patients, especially older COVID patients, convalescent plasma did have a beneficial effect in reducing severity and reducing risk of death. But the question here that these investigators were asking was slightly different. Would it work among people who were seen in the emergency department for COVID, but then received outpatient follow up treatment? So we're determined not to be acutely or severely ill. So convalescent plasma, as we all recall, is when antibodies are harvested from people who have recovered from COVID and infused in a different person, almost as an antibody transplant, as an effect to try to improve the immune response to someone who likewise has the the same disease. So And it has worked successfully in other diseases, and so this is a question that I will ask, or we could ask Chris later on, kind of why, if it does not work in this study, as Matt suggested, why does it work sometimes and not other times? So this is kind of the the core question here. So this study, they called it the the C3PO clinical trial, which is
1: the best (laughs) best name. The convalescent, (laughs) what was it? Convalescent plasma in outpatients trial. The C3PO trial. What was the third C? Uh, I I don't know.
2: Convalescent. COVID convalescent? COVID
0: convalescent cool. Cool uh, yeah, plasma? I don't know. I don't think I they know. liked the, the, yeah. the Star Wars
2: metaphor, <laughs> but they couldn't actually find a third C. So. I think you're right. I'm going to call foul COVID on that one.
0: With, like, just hold the C, C- for a COVID. little bit. It's COVID. It's like the who. Right, right. <laughs> so the three CPO clinical trial, coolly named... Phase three trial it was single blind. This was a multi center trial with patients, as I said, who were admitted to the emergency department but were determined to be stable for outpatient care. And these patients were randomized to either receive an IV of convalescent plasma with a high titer of antibodies to SARS CoV 2 or a placebo. And I thought it was actually clever in this paper. They described the placebo in great detail to show that the color of it and the substance of it and the packaging was going to match what the convalescent plasma IV looked like, and so these were IVs that the patients received. Their primary outcome was COVID disease progression within 15 days after ED admission, as measured by a few factors, hospital admission for any reason within this 15 days post-COVID, seeking emergency or urgent care or death without hospitalization. They also looked at a series of secondary outcomes, including progression to most severe states using two separate scales of COVID disease progression, so kind of progression to these worst-case COVID outcomes, also the number of hospital hospital-free days after hospitalization or death from any cause, and the participants in this study completed emails and telephone calls about their symptoms every other day during the study period, and chart reviews were done on day 15 and day 30 after diagnosis. Patients who had confirmed COVID were recruited into the study where they had an onset of symptoms within seven days before enrollment, they were 50 years or older, had at least one high risk factor for COVID severity under the expectation that the investigators would expect to see at least some disease progression in this group, enough to analyze. And so in terms of looking at what they did with this group, they had a total of 511 people enrolled in the trial, 257 in the plasma group, 254 in the placebo group. These were matched kind of mostly one-to-one across 21 states and 48 medical centers. 30% in terms of the the big reveal, 30% of the patients in the plasma group had disease progression and 31.9% of Participants in the placebo group had disease progression. So they did not see a difference between their treatment group and the placebo group as it related to their core outcome of disease progression within 15 days after COVID diagnosis. Likewise, the outcomes re- regarding severity, these were the secondary outcomes, were basically the same in both groups. And so, and there was no association also between antibody titer in the plasma and disease progression in the participants. Interesting as well. So their core conclusion was that convalescent plasma did not work very well in preventing disease progression among these patients with less severe COVID who were seen in the emergency department.
1: It's a great summary, and I think it is very revealing that the the headlines gave us the the null finding, it's almost in some ways surprising to see null findings picked up in the news, but I guess because this is something that people have been pinning their hopes on, uh, it does get picked up in the news. So Chris, uh, what did you think of the study? And in particular, I do want you to answer the question that Jess raised in the beginning, which is if this has worked for other diseases. I feel like Ebola was one where it, it was tried. I can't remember if it worked there. I, don't I think recall it was not super worked. successful. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it particularly worked. Um, but if it has worked for some diseases, why would it work for some and not for others? And then give us your general impression of the study.
2: Yeah, in fact it's funny you ask the question that way because the first thing I wrote on my um, sheet was why didn't it work with multiple underlinings and many question marks afterwards, because it it feels like it 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 should work, yeah. right? That yeah. is to say that if you know that the the convalescent antibodies are going to be include you know it's going to include a whole gamish, of different kinds of antibodies, but the ones we care about are the neutralizing antibodies, and so they focused on on that subset, and we know that. Amongst individuals who are vaccinated and achieve a, a protective response, they get high titer and neutralizing antibodies. And we've shown that, say, for a monoclonal antibody, like, you know, the what is it? The red reg, Regenkov? It's the, it's the cocktail that Trump received yeah. called made by this company Regeneron. I think uh-huh. their trade name is Regenkov with a hyphen. Anyway, that works really well. And it works through exactly the same mechanism as the vaccines, yeah. right? Which is that they blocks the interaction between the spike protein and the ACE receptor. So all of these are are in theory using exactly the same mechanism. So why would one not work against the other? And uh, and I, I wrote down a whole series of questions of things that, that I was curious about. Some of which they address in the paper, and you can sort of like test those hypotheses because I thought it was a very well-designed study, well-analyzed, and they provided a lot of information that was helpful for sort of you know trying to infer what happened mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple things that that you know you know I, I learned when I was thinking about this last night. So the first is that you know the monoclonal antibodies by Regeneron work in a, you know in the same way, but their pharmacokinetics are not. The same, so, meaning what exactly? Meaning that they have a, a, I should say, pharmacodynamics. They they have this. They have a much longer half-life than mm. patient-derived, naturally acquired antibodies. And Got so it. they 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 have a half-life of around thirty days. And typically, our own antibodies, manufactured antibodies, have a half-life of about two weeks. And so maybe they just don't linger as long once they're infused into a patient. That's possible. Another possibility is that you know the antibody, you know, the convalescent. Plasma has all sorts of stuff in it, some of which may be toxic, you know, because we know that people who get infusions of horse serum or human gamma globulins often have allergic reactions to that because it's filled with so much stuff. It's not a thing. It's a, it's a you know, it's a, a soup of thousands of millions of things, right? Um, some of which are convalescent, you know, neutralizing antibodies against COVID. I don't, I don't love the idea of being injected with soup. Yeah, (laughs) so, which is why, you know, why in some ways we can argue that, you know, this question is sort of more now of academic interest because we have Regeneron and the monoclonal antibodies, and so we don't really need the random soup. We can be much more specific, and so the question has become a little bit moot, in my view. Mm -hmm. But still, it drives me crazy because it should have worked, right? And so, you know, then there are other things about, about, you know, this experiment compared with, like, the Regeneron experiments, which were very clear that it was uh, efficacious in terms of reducing hospitalizations and mortality. And also uh, an earlier convalescent plasma study published, in fact, in the New York Journal of Medicine last January mm-hmm. led Which by we... Fernando Pollack's team down in Argentina, and they saw a 50% reduction in disease progression. So, so that to me seemed like, okay, so what is the difference about these two trials? And, and there are a couple of clear differences. In fact, Fernando's study, the median age was like 76. Mm-hmm. So they were much older. The median mm-hmm. age here is like 50. 54. 54, right? Yeah. So it's a you know very different population. So they were you know presumably much sicker, much more vulnerable. So you would think the event rate in terms of disease progression would be therefore much higher. So that's one difference. The timing of the administration of the monoclonals in Fernando's study was much earlier. Like there their median time to infusion relative to the onset of symptoms was thirty hours. Whereas here it was is like Four, four days. days. Four right. days. Right. And so you could say, well maybe antibodies would have worked if you'd given them early enough and, and they just waited four days and now it is too late because right. the snowball has triggered the avalanche of, you know, immunologic damage that is gonna just, you know, blast that village at the bottom of the mountain and it's too late to head it off. So I think both of those are are are, are possible. And and I would say that you know, looking at the two, my, my guess is that the most likely reason why the two studies came up with such different answers is because the population was younger in this trial and the, the administration of the antibodies was later. And that had they been older and sicker and, you know, given earlier then I, because I, I'm kind to actually believe that both studies are correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And then the third factor, of course, that we have to recognize is that Fernando's study was, was done pre-Delta mm-hmm. and they don't make any mention of which, you know, variants were present here. And so it could be that the antibody type you know, the antibodies work less well, you know, in in the face of the, the more aggressive variant. I don't, I don't know. It would have been nice, actually, if they'd provided those data, because they did do a, a PCR on every individual, so they could have, in theory, genotyped those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, those are sort of my, my, my theories and reactions to this.
1: So you, I think you, the point you raised there gets to one of the things that I think we don't spend enough time thinking about in epidemiology, which is that trials ask very specific questions, even in cases where we often don't realize <laughs> The specificity of the question that we're asking. And here, it's a, it's a very specific question. And the question could be varied, and you could get a different answer. When it comes to observational studies, we often ask far less precise questions. People want to know things like, is, you know, is eating a lot of red meat bad for me? Well, the answer to that question may depend a lot on how much red meat have you already eaten in your life, or not, you know, what's your the rest of your diet looking like, and what you know, how old are you, and all these things. But we don't ask those questions because they're so hard to ask. Whereas in in trials, you specify up front. And here, as you point out, you know, it, it may matter a lot how old you are, how sick you are, how long since you've had the symptoms, all kinds of things that might affect whether or not these kinds of treatments are in fact. Effective. Jess, what about you? What what stuck out for you in this one?
0: Yeah, I mean I, I also I agreed this was a well done study and what I came to in the lack of um, kind of sophisticated biological understanding was thinking of the timing, kind of thinking of the timing as it related to Delta. And so this study I think took place it was maybe April through February, let me see, of twenty twenty. August. So August 2020 through February 2021. And so that was, and this was in the United States. And so that was at a time where we were seeing this early emergence of Delta. And so the question, that was the question in my mind, was it just... That the patients were infused with antibodies to a variant that was different from the variant that they actually were infected with. Which and might be a good right.
2: explanation for why why they didn't work.
0: Maybe. And I would have yeah. like you, I would have wanted to see that would have been cool. Like yeah. that would have been the kicker to kind of so, know so if that. So not just was like the the, the,
2: the the variant of the uh, you know the person who had the disease, but it would also be interesting to know what the donors Right. Have been exposed to. And the donors and the were collected
0: earlier. So the donors were collected prior to their study period. And so they made the point later that for this to be effective, if it is going to be affected, you you have to, to try to make it as similar as possible that the donor and the patient have the same variant. So, yes, and so it was unclear that that happened here. But that was interesting to me.
1: So both of you have hinted at this, but this was a really complicated trial. I mean, mm-hmm. this was not easy... Right. To pull off. So as you said, they did this in 48 hospital emergency departments in 21 states. So a highly disseminated study. I mean, on average, you'd you'd guess there are about 10 patients per site. The study had three planned interim analyses. So at 33%, 50%, and 75% of of patients completing follow-up, they did not reach their targeted sample size because they stopped early at one of the interim analyses for futility. They used a Bayesian framework to analyze their results, which I have to admit I, I didn't totally get because they used a non-informative prior, but anyway, that's not important. But they had to get FDA approval for an investigational new drug. They had to have an independent safety monitor reviewing and adjudicating all severe adverse events, and NHLBI appointed an independent data and safety monitoring board. So this was this was a, a bear of a study, and yet they they clearly did pull it off. But it does, you know. Whenever studies get that complex, you, you wonder if there is room for, for error. And if there were, you know, if there were a, a small signal in here, whether it might not be missed just due to the the complexities, I don't know. Did did any of that stand out to you all as, as you know, a possible explanation for what's going on? Y-
2: yeah, I mean, to the extent that when one looks at their figure two, which is one of these, what do you call it, forest plots? Forest plot, basically,
1: but it's more of a... A forest plot demonstrating stratified analyses, analyses and the efficacy
2: across different groups. I mean, it, it's you know it's true that not a single one of these achieves statistical significance. But if you look at the point estimates for every one of these these stratifications, they almost all land slightly to the right, implying mm. you know that there was a suggestion of benefit. So small it, benefit, it, very very small benefit. So you know, but you you'd look at this and you'd say, well. You know, we're concluding that it has no efficacy, and, and maybe the reasons why are, are simply due to timing and, and the sickness of the patients. But it, it is also that there could be—you know—had this study been much larger, perhaps we would see that, in fact, there you could detect a benefit at some point within so, within
1: within sub, some subgroups, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't love the this analysis because they they didn't even reach their primary targeted sample size, and now you're doing. Stratified and now, yeah. like the, the, the idea that you're going to find anything there, I, I think is is fairly absurd. On the other hand, like we have, we have few we have few opportunities to get data like this, so I, I don't fault them for doing it. I mean, it certainly is useful. It's just it's not particularly conclusive. But anyway, other other points, Jess, that that you wanted to
0: raise. I was interested, and Matt would be interested in your thoughts on this in particular, kind of in the. How often studies are halted early because the findings are kind of overwhelmingly conclusive in one direction to the extent that they decide it's no longer, there's no longer that equipose balance of being able to provide the treatment to a group of people? And it's interesting to me because I feel like, again, I don't, read a t- I don't read a ton of articles in the medical literature, and so the idea that a result would be, especially in the context of a COVID study where this is a talked-about topic, that it would be terminated early you know, reflects a strong, <laughs> a strong signal Yeah. A strong signal in their primary analysis. And so I was wondering if either of you had any thoughts on how often that happens. Like, do we view this as something that this happens all the time or this is something that we kind of should take note of?
1: I see. I see. I I wouldn't say it's common, but I definitely see studies being stopped early, but usually not for futility. It seems like the ones that I read are are stopped early because there's a an early signal and then it becomes there's no equipoise to withhold the treatment from The placebo group, but I, I I don't know that I've seen very many studies stopped for futility. Chris, have
2: you not, not too many, no. Yeah. I mean, I do recall, I think, wasn't one of those HIV uh, prevention studies in Africa that that you based your 702 course about, about STD prevention as prevention of HIV? I think one of those was stopped for futility. Definitely possible, yeah. But I, you know, I could be making that up. Yeah, but but
1: still, the fact that we can't, we're not coming across a lot of them. And, you know, when we we pull these studies, at least as I do, I pull them that are interesting based on the title. I never look at what the finding is because I don't want to be influenced by that. And so the fact that we haven't come, this is the first one we've come across in the time we've been doing this suggests to me it's not that common. Yeah.
2: You know, there was a, there was a a recent clinical development program that was stopped because of futility, which was the CureVac mRNA vaccine, which was to be the third of the mRNA vaccines licensed. And they pulled their file from FDA about two weeks ago, um, because it was, it was clear that there was no, you know, There was no scenario where their vaccine was going to was going to meet the the efficacy endpoints required by FDA. Interesting, and and they was it a very different kind of vaccine? Well, that is the 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 million the the three hundred million dollar (laughs) question. Uh, I'm not going to quote my source on that, but but apparently the the trial was really expensive. I
1: mean, of Um, course. That doesn't surprise me. So,
2: and, and, you know, I've, I've heard a number of different explanations for why it didn't work, such as, you know, Delta. But it's... You know, we we have I had thought of, of the mRNA vaccines as sort of like, like interchangeable as a class because Pfizer and Moderna became so too, yeah. similarly, but I I guess what the CureVac study is is or the CureVac experience is telling us is that that is not necessarily true uh-huh. that there there are other things going on here. Some have said, for example, that oh, it's all about the dose. Like Moderna has a higher dose than than Pfizer, and that is true. But, you know, from what I've seen in other clinical trials of different vaccines, the dose tends to be not that important a factor, that it's, you know, usually we're giving a maximum dose anyway, and so we're kind of asymptotic in terms of the immune response. And so it's more likely that there are other things about the vaccine composition that we take for granted but could be really important. For example, the, you know, the vaccine, the mRNA strands in the, in the vaccines have to be constructed very deliberately because yep. the, you know, mRNA by itself is a reactogenic molecule and and will trigger lots of side effects. And so this is the the seminal discovery of Caitlin Carrico who found that different species, different sources of mRNA were more more or less likely to trigger a a nasty side effect in the recipient. And and she was later on able to track that down to the substitution of certain nucleotides Mm. in the RNA sequence that gave the same information but were less reactogenic and basically labeled this strand as being host- Origin, human origin as opposed to bacterial origin, and that changed the reactivity profile. And then certain, you know, extra, you know, n- nucleic acid modifications did the same thing that would make it less reactive. So that means that the companies, when they're devising these vaccines, have to make decisions about what, e- how exactly they're going to write this modified string of mRNA. And mm-hmm. that's going to be proprietary and therefore almost certainly different between the three companies. Mm-hmm. So that's point number one. Point number two is that those modifications are going to change the hydrogen bonding characteristics of the mRNA. So the mRNA, you know, is... You know, we think of it as a string of information, but in, in, in vivo, don't. when it gets into a cell, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's going gonna, it's gonna to coil up on itself like a protein and turn into kind of like a woolly ball, tangled woolly ball, right? And that woolly ball of sort of tangled up RNA has to then engage with the ribosome and transcribe into a protein. Mm-hmm. And so different woolly balls are going to engage with that ribosome more or less efficiently. So it, it's, it's like could be that the, the tertiary structure of the RNA molecule, once it gets into a cell, also makes a big difference. Hmm. So you know all, all of those things. You know those two factors may you know because if your if your RNA gets into a cell but doesn't officially turn into protein, right? Which we assume it does. Then it's to but good. then it's not going to be as effective as mm-hmm. a vaccine. So it's not the dose so much as was what is the tertiary structure of the RNA could be. You know, so that's been theorized to be, be an important factor. And then the third one, of course, is that the. These RNA molecules by themselves cannot be naked in the in the plasma. When you inject it, it cannot be. Right. You have to, put, to put, it put it in, in these a... little lipid nanospheres to yep. protect it from from your own enzymes, which know that RNA floating around in the bloodstream is bad news and should be destroyed on contact, right? Because it's usually coming from a bacteria or virus like COVID. And in this case, it is coming from a virus <laughs> like COVID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, they, they they have to be shielded. And so the chemistry of creating those lipid nanoparticles is also proprietary. And is likely to differ between the three companies, and yeah. so there's there are other things beyond just its coding for spike protein that go beyond the simple the more simple model of that that's what determines the immune response. I, I think we've now learned that there's a lot more to it, and on top of that, I, we, we should also acknowledge that the CureVac people <laughs> were really hit by Delta hard, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. they had a much much more difficult. Challenge in terms of demonstrating efficacy than Moderna and Pfizer, who are all dealing with the Wuhan variant, the original wild type strain. So the, the the world shifted so very different back. experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: All right. So let me let me then the last thing I wanted you all to comment on, and I'm going to use a Chris-ism here, and I'm going to read this into the record. From this is from their discussion. <laughs> they they hypothesized some reasons why they didn't find a benefit, and they say. The lack of efficacy could have resulted from insufficient dose of plasma or titers of neutralizing antibodies, timing of administration, selection of patients, or presence of potentially harmful components in the convalescent plasma administered." Did we cover all of those? Did were those all in the list of things we hypothesized?
2: Well, the the toxic components, yeah. there's some evidence of it, because there was a higher rate of mortality. Five yeah, people right. dived in the in the convalescent versus the one in the placebo group. It's statistically, it was not a it was
1: not a significant difference, but it was it was certainly a potential wonder. signal. Yeah. And,
2: and they also reported that there was a high incidence of, of infusion related side effects, which mm-hmm. of course is obvious, right? Yeah. Because you know, infusing saline has very few side effects, infusing a complicated witch's of all sorts of stuff is going to have, is going to do, who who, know, who the heck knows what it's going to do. So, you know, maybe added toxicity compensates for clinical protection. Yep. There's, there's a, you know, two forces countering each other.
1: And, and then lastly, because the primary outcome was not adjudicated, some treatment failures may have resulted from conditions other than the progression of COVID-19. I mean, th- that seems to be yeah, that's like- possible, but it doesn't seem to be likely to be an explanation for the differences.
2: I agree.
0: Yeah. No, I agree.
2: Yeah, I think case mix and patient selection and timing probably explain a lot of this. Yeah. I do too. All right. Well, we're gonna move on then. But before
1: we do, Chris, since you raised this issue of soup, I have to ask you a question that's being <laughs> debated in my household right now: chicken soup versus lentils. <laughs> Is cereal a soup? Jess, what no. do you think?
0: No. Why not? Because it's crunchy. But it's it's. <laughs>
1: Floating it's true. material in you know, a like, brothy substance.
0: It's it kind of goes to that like okay, it's I've, crunchy gazpacho. Silenced Chris.
1: <laughs> this has never happened before. Is cereal a soup, Chris? Yes or no? Maybe. Oh boy. Nick, yes or no? What other soup comes from just putting two different things together and then it's a soup? No, you have to like cook C- it. Nick, okay. Nick says because it's just two things put together, it's not a soup. There's no cooking. Well, gazpacho isn't cooked. What about stone soup? It is cooked. Water and rocks. There you go. Stone soup. There you go. I'm going to say it is a soup. I'm saying it is a soup.
2: (laughs) With carrots and onions and potatoes and Brussels sprouts and chicken broth and, you know. All right. But that's just after this. You've made the soup. You're just flavoring it now.
1: Okay. Well, we're getting to the the important questions here, thankfully. All right. So let's move on to segment two where we are going to talk about an article – that was it was a news story in Jama entitled gun violence researchers are making up for 20 years of lost time by Alicia Alt and you know this is i mean it was just a basically a news story talking about the increase in funding that is being allocated to gun violence here in the United States where we have a huge problem with gun violence both suicide and people shooting other people so in the United States, funding for gun violence research has been mainly non-existent since 1996 when the U.S. Congress passed the Dickey Amendment, which prohibited the CDC from using any injury prevention funding to advocate or promote gun control. Now, they don't talk about this in the article, but the amendment doesn't say you can't use funds for gun violence research, it just says you can't use it for advocacy purposes, but it created such a chilling effect that CDC didn't use funding for this. Interestingly enough, one of the people who was very opposed to the Dickey Amendment after it passed and... and Wanted to work towards getting it repealed was Dickey himself, right? Who then, once he saw the implications, was uh, horrified. Uh, by what been done. So anyway, things have changed in the United States, and now in 2019, the Congress has authorized 25 million dollars in spending on gun violence research. To Not be split. a lot of money. No, so no. this is okay. So let's get into it because this is the question. I mean, great, we're moving in the right direction. But is 20? What? It, what it, I mean, 25 million dollars kind of sounds like a big number when you're outside of of public health, but when you actually think about what you could use $25 million for.
2: It doesn't go that far in research.
1: It, it really doesn't. Or, or, or A couple R
2: ones and some R21s. And yeah, that's I mean, a couple
1: it. of, you could do a a handful of studies. So are we, I mean, is this something that we should be applauding or is this really just sort of a a tiny step in, in the right direction?
2: I mean, it's a glass half empty, half full, isn't it? I mean, it's better than no millions of dollars, but it's it's still like, kind of chump change you know this is my feeling it's not really taking it very seriously yet this is my feeling. Right. Jess, what yeah, about you? No,
0: I, I feel like, so if I were a junior investigator and trying to decide if I was going to be, if you have X amount of time to be writing R01 proposals, like, do you choose this field or no? I feel like I would still choose no, that there doesn't seem to be a steady enough stream of research to say, I'm going to really commit the amount of time it takes to write grant proposals in this space, given the amount of funding, you know? So it, it's, there are some people who have been working in this space, either through private Funds are through, you know, kind of non-public resources, largely. And then those people can kind of jump into this small-ish bucket. It's great the money is there. But I think part of the challenge here is kind of really inspiring a generation of researchers to look at gun violence as a public health issue. And I'm not sure this is this is doing that right at this moment.
1: I think that's exactly right. So one of the quotes in here that I thought was so telling was Megan Rainey uh, at Brown says, the presence of funding legitimates gun violence research as an area of focus and career path. And essentially, you know, the the commitment of funding to a particular topic signals the priorities of the U.S. government and their willingness to fund things going forward. So if you want to build a robust research program dedicated towards gun violence prevention – then you have to commit a lot of money because y- y- people can't just start from from zero and suddenly be good at doing this research. You have to be able to make a transition or you have to grow new researchers who are interested in this topic. And so unless you signal to them that we're really serious about this topic and you can build a career doing this, by putting a lot of money into it to be able to 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 say we're taking it seriously, to tell people we're taking it seriously, it's not going to go anywhere. So I I was quite surprised I, I I knew that this had happened but I didn't realize how much money it was
2: yeah I while, while, while the two of you were, were talking I was quick you know scurrying uh, onto Google to look up uh, a, a factoid which I had dimly remembered uh, which provides an interesting contrast so here is a here is a, a disease that causes some morbidity but no mortality that is very common uh, amongst the wealthier individuals in Connecticut New York and Massachusetts Lyme disease Lyme disease which mm-hmm. in the current Twenty-one fiscal budget got $91 million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. 40,000 people a year die of guns. Nobody dies of Lyme disease. And yet Lyme disease is out competing guns four to one. You know, there you go. I, it's like, it, where are our priorities here?
1: And yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 I mean, I don't off the top of my head remember what the, you know, the budget of, you know, NIAID is, the infectious disease Budget, but it's 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 massive, and so you know, twenty five million does sound like a big number if you're just sort of thinking about you know what I as an individual could do with twenty five million dollars. Wouldn't it be great? But as a as a pool of money to spur research to be able to deal with uh, an with seemingly intractable problem right now is really a pittance. I mean, the other thing that, that that struck me when I was reading this is, you know, we need interventions to to be able to to stem the tide of this problem but we also need policy research but we need to know what is effective at getting people you know to moving the needle and we, we the laws in the in the United States are so restrictive around gun control that it's it's almost hard to even envision a scenario where you'd have enough natural experiments to be able to do really good policy relevant gun research i don't mean to imply there's none because there there is and it has been done but we need we need more. I mean, we need mm-hmm. a, a whole program of policies to be able to figure out what we're going to do, and we're just we're not doing it. It's
2: better oh, yeah. than nothing, but it's still like just shockingly, shamefully low. Yeah, yeah. given the scale of the problem.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. Other 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 thoughts,
0: One Jess? One of the things I thought was interesting about this article, at least, was talking about how if gun violence research is to become something that is apolitical and not just linked to gun control as a political issue. There needs to be an effort among researchers to bring in different stakeholders mm-hmm. in, the, in the debate. And that, you know, that topic in environmental health, we call it community-based participatory research, the idea of how do you bring in stakeholders from policymakers and local leaders and gun control activists and gun rights activists? And how do you kind of bring in this group to figure out what are the really important kind of core research questions in this research space that can become apolitical in a way that could maybe lead to a constant funding stream for this line of research. Because again, if I were a young person thinking about, is this an area that I should enter? I would say maybe right now, maybe in 2019, there was $20 million, but maybe in five years from now, there'll be $0 depending Mm -hmm. on who's president. And so that doesn't feel safe enough for me as like an, an area to enter. But I think that idea of engaging the larger community to try to say, of people who are invested in these issues, what are the questions? How can we make it so this becomes kind of a more, has a more standard place in public health that is more resistant to the political environment?
1: It's a really really tough one because, I mean, presumably everybody would agree that gun violence is bad and something we want to do something about. But because it is so embroiled in, Gun rights activism, and therefore anything you do related to trying to reduce gun violence will be seen as political and potentially an attempt to find ways around gun rights, which you know is something that we we can't get away from in the United States, then it, it becomes almost impossible. And that is why the the Dickey Amendment was so chilling, was because, you know, regardless of what it said. The climate that it was, uh, you know, put into in the United States made it made the implications of it almost inevitable, regardless of what the amendment actually said. And so we were going to end up in a place where there was there was nothing
2: nothing more that was going to be done of benefit.
1: Chris, other other, well, thoughts?
2: I'm I'm trying to find the the first name of this scientist that they quote, whose last name is Betts, in the article. But there's a very interesting quote that she she uh, gives here. She says, I feel even more of a responsibility to make it very clear that this is not about advocacy and is not about gun control it's about answering the questions that really we all want answered and engaging these really important groups in the research And I, I thought you know that that was a very sensible comment that she made because she's, she's really getting to the you know, the, the crux of this issue, this, this discourse, which is that, you know, how do we do gun research without making gun research all about gun advocacy? You know, how do we depoliticize it and just treat it as a public health, you know, problem without making it a political problem? Uh, I'm not totally optimistic that we can at this point, but, but that, you know, in, in order for the field to move ahead, we can't be in the situation where the $25 million that is appropriate to do this research is a line item from Congress, as opposed to part of, you know, NIH's discretion budget to say, these are the priorities that we are going to focus on, and Congress has no oversight over that, other than the total number that NIH gets. It is, like, really unusual that they have specifically allocated $25 million to this project, rather than just saying, we we repeal the Dickey Amendment at NIH, you're free to do what you think is the right thing to do. But they're not doing that, which means that these $25 million funds could be ephemeral, as you were saying.
1: Mm-hmm. And they could, right, they could go away with the next... With the next Congress. The next Congress, the next president, who knows? I, I would agree. I, so, I think we're All in agreement. This is this is uh, you know a a small step in the right direction, but it is not nearly what we need to be able to effectively deal with the massive problem we have in the United States. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a bit of a downer. So let's move on to our final segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And I'm gonna go first because I got a I got a short one, but that just made me happy. It was a tweet, which somebody and I didn't copy the tweet, I just copied the text of the tweet, so I don't have the name of the person who put out the tweet, but I think it is Amy Belfi, Belfi, Belfi who tweeted out this list that they are putting together which is a crowdsourced list of academic papers with song lyrics in the title oh. <laughs> and so you can go on to the link and you can get the lyric, the song title, the artist and then the link to the PubMed article, so a few, I'll give you a few examples, people have Entitled Papers, Ground Control to Major (laughs) Tom, Oops (laughs) I Did It Again, More Than a Feeling, The Times They Were (laughs) a-Changing, Let's See, Um, Getting to Know You, Feel the Noise, Pump Up the Jam, I Get By With a Little Help from My Friends, Lost in the Supermarket, Might As Well Jump, all kinds of really good things that people have turned into Titles for their papers, and I have that's awesome. So much respect for people who do that. I, I have to. Th- this
2: is one of my I, my dreams. I feel in the life. gears turning here. Yeah, mm-hmm. I <laughs> I see up. a future publication coming from from Fox at all. Just so
1: that I can go onto their list and add, staying alive. Add, oh, I like that. Oh, there must be one in here. <laughs> Hold on. I don't, I don't. see it on the list. It's our
0: next clinical trial for next right. I'm, I'm, I, I, I was in a. I was in a study like this as I I was a, a graduate student and we did a study. We called it the baby born to Drive My Car Study, where we drove cars. This was not my core dissertation project, but one of our lab members. We drove cars really close, dangerously close to chicken trucks. Wait, what? In the Delmarva Peninsula, it, we're for industri- like we're industrial chicken transmission. My whole thesis research was about industrial chickens. And we drove as close as we could behind these open air chicken transport vehicles with all kinds of air quality monitoring devices on oh, the cars. Wow, and what that an was experiment! The baby, won't you drive my car, Steady? What did you learn? Um, there's all kinds of disgusting stuff that comes off of a chicken truck, so stay back. Wow,
2: wow that is <laughs> right. so cool.
0: Shout that out like, to I, Dr. Ellen Silvergeld, formerly at Johns Hopkins. But yes, this was. Um, how, how close did you have to get? We were pretty close. We were. I was in the back seat trying to man... I was not the driver. I think it would have scared me a little. But I was in the back seat trying to maintain some of the equipment. But we were pretty close, and the chicken truck drivers were onto it after a while, and so would pull over, and then we'd try to like act cool and <laughs> get back on the road with them. But um, give yeah. me
1: give me an example <laughs> of how you tried to act cool. <laughs>
0: Like, we would pull over, too, and pretend that, like, you know, we were just fixing the radio and we had to make a phone call or something like that. Wow. But, yeah. All right. You yeah. need to
1: go on and, I should, and add I that a one one a to the list. I should make a note and add us, right, right? All right. Chris, what do you got?
2: Uh, Wind farms. Wind farms. Yeah. I So Massachusetts has finally approved... The construction of the wind farms mm. off of, um, of Cape Vineyard. And Cape Vineyard. It's, long, it's
0: been a long time. Yeah,
2: yeah. it's been a long time. It's like it's 20 years,
0: right? Forever, yeah. right,
2: that they've been talking about this. And so I, I ran across this article in Scientific American, which sort of talks about how you install wind turbines. And and we do not need to know how to do this. No, we but, don't. But, um, I mean, unless we're going to do what it was in so, here. I was so impressed with is, is the size of these things that they they look big because you see them when you're driving along route three heading to the Cape yep. but they're really 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 big mm. these things are like super big and and so it's like some some facts here that the the wind turbines that they're installing in Vineyard Sound which are each going to generate 13 megawatts, they measure about 500 feet from the waterline to the rotor, which is the point where the... How many the, feet? 500 feet. 500 feet. They're 500 feet tall. And they go down 200 feet to the seabed. Yeah, makes sense. And they are driven about 300 feet into the bedrock of the seabed. So the whole thing is actually taller than the John Hancock building mm. when you when you do it. And it all has to be assembled by these these huge boats, which are made in Denmark and are brought over. But the thing is that there's sort of legal issues around maritime law mm-hmm. that they're not allowed to actually do like land at on the United States and pick up the stuff, and so they have to bring other boats to ferry all the materials out to these boats, so they oh, stay in international or not international waters, but they stay offshore, and then they in, they construct these things, and they you know they do it in two ways. One is like a giant pile driver that sends this massive pylon you know two hundred feet into the into the bedrock, and that's for the shallow water turbines, and then for the the ones that are deeper water, they have these tripod things, which are these giant, massive like you know pedestals that also, go and drill themselves into the into into the bedrock, and and to install these things, the whole thing, you know, the boat that is carrying this can't be kind of bouncing around and bobbing in the waves. And so, the boats themselves that install these these monsters drop down their own set of pylons, and so they actually create they they touch down to the foot of the water, two hundred feet down, mm. and then they raise themselves up hydraulically, so they're no longer moving around in the water. They're actually out of the water, held by their own pylons as they install the pylons. And you know they're gonna they're gonna put up I don't know dozens a hundred of these things. It's like it, it, the, the scale of this is, is kind of mind-boggling. That's awesome. It's so awesome, yeah. Because each one of these turbines can provide electricity for about thirty thousand homes. So they they are they're gonna generate a ton of electricity through this project.
1: We we should get one of those boats.
2: Oh, we should. They they make them in Denmark.
1: How, how hard could it be to pilot
2: one of those things, huh? Anyway, I thought I thought it was very it cool, was totally cool and and fascinating. And I wish I'm thinking like, can I take my little boat out there and go and check them out, mm. or would that be suicide? I'm Probably suicide.
1: Gonna say suicide, and I'm not gonna encourage that. All right, Jess, what do you got?
0: Something a little different. So this is a study out of the University of Nebraska at Lincoln that was published in early August that was looking at the first few months of the pandemic lockdown in Los Angeles So from March to May 2020, Mm -hmm. and looking at mountain lion movement in the greater Los Angeles area during this period Mm. of time where people (sighs) were not moving around. And so this was interesting because obviously I'm interested in these kind of environmental corollaries of the pandemic and in people reducing their mobility specifically. And there have been a good amount of studies now that come out looking at air quality and how air quality changed because of reduced commuter traffic. Etc. So this is one that was looking at animal habitat and how animal habitat shifted. And so there, the authors approached this study under the hypothesis that mountain lions would be moving around a lot more when people are not moving yep. because some of their movement is hampered by human mobility. And so if people are kind of staying put, they're just going to be roaming free. And it, Actually, they found the opposite. And these mountain lions were tracked, I think, like some of them for almost 20 years, like they had a tracking device on them. And their movement was dramatically restricted during the pandemic. Which I is have a hypothesis. Counter. What was your hand? I'll tell you what theirs was. But well, what was yeah. I just
1: wondered, is that because people actually were home during the day? And so they're the neighborhoods where these mountain lions might be now there are humans around whereas during the day they they wouldn't have been there
0: Interesting so the authors didn't suggest oh. that although that 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 certainly could be what they were saying is they were they were thinking that there is an evolutionary benefit to not moving to stasis hmm. and that is kind of shared by all animals that if you don't have to roam around you're not going to And so the part of the reason that the mountain lions were roaming around so much was because of human of human presence. Mm-hmm. And so maybe they weren't able to go to all the spaces they wanted to. And so maybe they had to take longer distances to get from point A to point B. And so when people were not moving, they were able to be more direct mm-hmm. and intentional in their uh-huh. movements. And so they restricted their habitat in a way that was kind of unexpected kind of and interesting. And it'll be interesting because I'm sure there will be ecologists who will look at other animal species, like wild birds, for example, or wild rodents, to kind of see how their habitat was shifted during a period of dramatically reduced human movement.
1: You know, now that you say it, it does make sense, because I certainly don't move unless I have to.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, I think we right, we see it, too, as people, right? You're not going to go and jog if you don't have to. Absolutely. Reason, right? Absolutely. Right? Well, that's very cool. Anyway.
2: Did either of you see uh, this YouTube video that floated around a while ago about this guy who encountered a, a mother a mountain lion and her cubs on some backwoods trail in Utah? Nope. I, th- uh,
0: I feel like I did and they like beat it up or something. Was that?
2: Well, he, he, you know, for some reason he's got his cell phone out and he's, oh. he's videotaping mm-hmm. his, his hike. And up in the distance, you see a couple of mountain lion cubs kind of trotting across the path. And he's like, oh. Because shortly afterward, there's mom, yep. and mom is not amused to see mm. him there. And it, the, the the rest of the video, which is about seven minutes long, is of him walking backwards with mm. the mountain lion in his face the entire time, snarling and growling mm. and looking like it's going to pounce on him. Yeah. And he's like throwing rocks at it and trying to like d- dissuade it. It just will not leave him alone. And eventually, he gets away because obviously. the video was retrieved
1: (laughs) (laughs) it could have been a Blair Witch type situation where they just found the the, the camera afterwards but I'm glad he
2: got away it is anxiety provoking to the extreme to watch this video because you just sort of feel like he's you know the guy is just like okay kitty nice kitty (laughs) you know stay back stay back don't touch you know leave uh, no 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 kitty stay away and eventually yelling and trying to raise his arms which would momentarily dissuade it and it was like take a couple steps back and snarl, and he's just like, "Oh, this is this." And you obviously cannot turn right. and run for it because right. that would be the end, instantly, and <laughs> the, the <thing> end. That, <laughs> the thing I do not, I absolutely Mad do English. not get about these
1: situations is, if that's me, first of all, I don't know what to do. But the one thing I'm not going to do is keep my. They cell didn't. phone camera on. Right, I'm going to be very focused on staying alive. You might throw the cell phone at the the mountain exactly. to see if that will dissuade it. Exactly. I, I've never I've never understood these people who videotape these harrowing situations and how they not not that they do it, but how they manage to even think to do it. Yeah. It's bizarre to me. Anyway, <laughs> that well, is that the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at or You can tweet me at Profmatfox or Don at at Dthea1 or Chris at id.gill, or You can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. So we want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound editing And soup adjudication. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode.